You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. And I invite you to turn, um, return to John 14. This morning we're going to return uh, to verse 27. We never made it to verse 28 last week, and there's a lot going on in verse 28. So I want to return to these passages. John 14, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, with this prayer, we want to recognize and we want to confess freely before you that if we're going to profit from this reading and from this meditation and discussion of your word, then, Father, we, we, are, um, we are utterly dependent upon your grace. And we pray, Father, that you be pleased to give us your grace this morning, that, Father, you would speak to us through your word, that you would give our hearts understanding, that, Father, you would work by way of our will, and, Father, that, Lord, by your grace, we would find ourselves uh, aligning our hearts and our minds with the truths that are in these passages. So, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This morning I want to continue the discussion we began last week on peace, and I want to begin um, this morning by, if you will, um, um, I mean, you can pull out a sheet of paper if you have one or your bulletin. Um, there's a place for notes usually on our bulletins. Uh, or you can just simply do it in your mind. Um, think of a blank sheet of paper and draw a line down the center of that blank sheet of paper so that we have two columns. We have a left column and we have a right column. You can do again, you, if it's easier for you to do it on your bulletin, you can do it on your bulletin. Um, you know, you don't need a lot of space. I'm just going to, as we go along, I'm just going to give you some uh, one word, maybe two, three word uh, phrases as we go along. Um, the left column is um, going to concern how Jesus brings peace and why we should pursue it. Um, why, why would that be important? Well, largely in our culture today, Jesus in many ways has been deemed irrelevant. I mean, if people understood how badly we need Jesus, they would be coming to Jesus in, in droves. They would be coming to Jesus in the masses. And one of the things that we have to do is, first of all, we have to show how Jesus um, brings peace, and we have to show why we should pursue it. Um, that's the left-hand column. And I, I, never, I, I love to preach on evangelism, but I never like to preach only on evangelism. When we're you know, when we're talking about evangelism, I think we always should go beyond evangelism um, to edification. And that's why on the right-hand column, what I, wanna, uh, what I want you to think about in the right-hand column is how our growth in grace improves 
our peace. Does that make sense? So we're showing how Jesus gives peace and why it's important. It's a good thing, and we're going to see it's important that we teach this to ourselves. We need to teach this to ourselves often, but it also loads us up. It, fill, it fills, up, fills us up with how to answer a crying world, how to answer a crying neighbor, how to answer a, con, a, con, a confused person. It gives us fodder for that. But um, in the right-hand column, we're, we're asking ourselves, okay, how does our growth in grace, in other words, how does our growth in sanctification, or still put another way, how does our growth in Christ-likeness improve our peace? Now, where this right-hand column is concerned, I need to make a disclaimer because this, could, this is in danger right now of running south very quickly. When I speak about improving our peace, okay, uh, I need to very carefully parse that because there's a sense in which the believer has peace and that peace cannot be improved upon. It's what we call in theology positional peace. And if I don't mention that, I could give you the impression that we're now, when we leave here, we're going out and we're laboring for peace with God. We're not doing that. The moment we put our faith and our trust in Christ, we are given in that moment all of the peace with God we are ever going to have. And you might in your mind think that is positional peace. We're going to talk more about that. I'm going to flesh that out a little further as we go along. And as I'm looking at facial expressions, I see we're probably going to need to flesh that out. Don't be scared if you're not getting this just yet. I think by the time we're done, I'm going to be drilling this one really hard. So I think by the time we're done, we're all going to get it. It's important that we get this distinction. I'm making a distinction between positional peace and what I'll call for the purpose of this sermon, pilgrimage peace. Okay. So we have, the moment we put our faith and our trust in Christ, we are given peace with God. Do we always realize that peace experientially in our hearts? Now, we know better than that, don't we? Lots of things come down the pike. Lots of seasons come down the pike where we wouldn't describe our, our, <laughs> our inner heart as being peaceful, would we? I mean, a lot of things happen, don't they, that disturbs this inward peace. And that's the peace, the pilgrimage peace. As we pilgrimage through this earth, as we pilgrimage through this world, um, our peace is often going to be disrupted. And that's the peace that I'm talking about when I'm saying improving our peace. That makes sense? So we have a left-hand column, we have a right-hand column. Left-hand column is how Jesus brings peace and why it should matter. Right-hand columns, how our growth and grace can improve our pilgrimage peace. Does that sound okay? Now, when we come to verse 27, Jesus says there, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And we looked at this last week in some depth last week, and some of this is going to be a reminder. I mean, the person who has read John's gospel once, all the way through, already knows what, where Jesus is going with this. Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to depart from them. In real time, his disciples don't understand. They don't understand what he's talking about. We wouldn't understand what he was talking about. We wouldn't be getting. They're perplexed. They're confused. Their hearts are troubled. You know, we're told that at the end of verse 27. Their hearts are troubled. They're afraid. They're scared. 
I want to say much more about that. But what is the first thing that we should think about when Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, especially when it is posited in the context of Jesus' departure? We know his departure is going to take place on the cross. On the cross, Jesus will depart. He dies on the cross. He's placed in the tomb. On the third day, he he rises from the dead. What does Jesus accomplish on the cross? He accomplishes peace, doesn't he? Now, one of the reasons why I chose John 3.36 this morning for our Scripture memory verse is because, as I said last week, that's a verse we need to get in our toolbox. John 3.36. And I don't know if anybody has it memorized yet or not, but let's go through it again. John 3.36. Okay? Whoever believes in the Son has what? Eternal life, right? And it's helpful to get this one down when you see the construction of the verse. There are two parallel lines. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay? Second parallel line, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And what's really wonderful about this verse is how it explains what saving faith is. With one line, it uses the word belief. With the next line, it uses the word obedience. A saving faith is not a faith that simply professes and, and, there's, and, 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 and is left unchanged and very much like the world. Saving faith is a faith that obeys. Saving faith is a faith, is a faith that is progressively aligning its life uh, with the revealed will of God in His Word, isn't it? Yeah, we're not saying it's a perfect. We know better. It's not perfect. There's not a one of us who are perfect that waits, you know, that, that awaits for glorification. You know, sometimes... Some, sometimes, some of us in the faith, we can be difficult sometimes, can't we? I mean, I know myself, I can be quite difficult. Someone might say, if Rick, you know, we're going to get a lot better. We're going to get along with Rick a lot better once he's glorified. You know, and we can chuckle and laugh about that. And it's, it is what it is. But there should be this progressive, these progressive steps where as, as we're moving along and marching along, we're becoming more Christ-like and our hearts and our lives are being more aligned Uh, with the will of God. So here we have these two lines. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You know, get start by memorizing it by memorizing the first line. Get the first line down. Then the second line won't be too hard. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But then there's a tag on the end that explains the whole thing. Why shall the one who does not obey uh, not see life? Because the wrath of God remains on him. The word remain is really important. It means that it's always been there and it still hasn't been taken away. And the reason we need, we need this verse in our toolbox for a whole bunch of reasons because it is, it is a horrifying thought. It's a terrible thought. The thought of, of one human being being lost is a horrifying thought. It's a terrible thought. And what do we typically do with terrible thoughts? We push them back in our minds like, like, okay, it's not going to happen today, so I'm not going to worry about it. But we need, we need to constantly be reminding ourselves, our loved ones, our friends, our relatives, our, our, our neighbors who are, 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 have yet to bow their knees to the Lordship of Christ. They're objects of God's wrath. So in your left-hand column, you might put wrath down. Now, I don't really recommend that we run around and tell people, 
you know, the wrath of God is upon you. I mean, I don't think that's helpful in this culture, although I, listen, I'm not telling you what to say. Um, I can share with you how I go about it if you're interested. Um, I like to use two other words, the word holy and the word just, and you know that because I've used these words with many of you. (laughs) Holy and just. I remember, um, and you've heard this story, um, most of you have heard this story before. When I was a, uh, probably 12 years old, maybe 13 years old, I asked my Sunday school teacher why Jesus had to die on the cross. And I, I remember her, she, she, was, she was so happy that I asked a question like that. Um, she said, oh, sweetie, he died on the cross for your sins. And I said, yeah, I know, I get that. I understand that. I hear that. But Jesus is God, right? She says, yes, sweetie, Jesus is God. I said, then why? If he's God, why couldn't he just say, Forget about it. You know, listen, it's, it's all, it, listen, I got it all covered. Forget about it. I didn't know the answer to that question until I was in my late 20s. Now, many of you know the answer to that question now, and you realize um, how, what a blessing it is to know the answer to that question. What is the answer to that question? The answer to that question is God is holy and just, and there are things that are even impossible for God. For example, it's impossible for God to lie. Scripture teaches us that, doesn't it? It's impossible for God to be unjust. It's impossible for God to be unholy. And because he's holy, he cannot have fellowship with sin. And because he is just, he must punish sin. See, this is, ne- this is necessary. And I think it's better to explain this to people. Listen, this is something about God that we must understand that is necessary. And you wouldn't want it any other way. Why should they embrace this? Because you don't want it any other way. Do you want somebody like one of the leading tyrants in the world being God? Someone who is unprincipled? Someone who is capricious? Somebody who is unjust? Somebody who just don't know what's coming? They could tell the truth now. They could lie now as world leaders are known to do, including our own. You know, it's a travesty in our land. One of the things we need to be praying about, I think, in future elections is not about how future elections affect our pocketbooks, but the character that God would raise up people in this land. There are people in this land that still have character. There are people in this land that still tell the truth. How refreshing would it be To have somebody, whether it be local or whether it be in state or whether it be in federal government, that just simply told the truth. We don't even expect that anymore. And I think it's a real travesty. And this is, everything's about politics today. So there's lots of conversations about politics. And here's one way you can really make, I think, make contact with people. Would you like God to be like these leaders? Would you like God to be like the average president of the United States? Would you like God to be like the, uh, the leaders of North Korea or, or Russia or Ukraine? There's, believe it or not, there's like corruption in Ukraine. I don't know if anybody knows that or not. And there's corruption everywhere in this world. Do we want God to be like that? Now, I want to tell you about a leader who is not corrupt in any way. His name's Jesus. Why should you pursue him? Because here's a leader who's not elected every four years, who is the same today and yesterday and forevermore, and he's not corrupt. 
Now, we know all this stuff. How does our growth in grace, how would our growth in grace improve our pilgrimage peace? As we think about wrath, as we think about holiness and justice, those are the three things that we have in our left column, right? How does growth in grace improve our peace? Well, right now we're living in tumultuous times, aren't we? I mean, you watch the news, and the news has its own agenda too. It's called ratings and propaganda. And I'm not, both both sides are doing this. Just be in mind, both sides are doing this. Um, How do we improve our pilgrimage peace in the midst of all this bombardment, of all these things that are happening? Well, John 3.36. We just ask ourselves, wait a second, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Well, I, I, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I'm trying to align my heart and my life with you. And what that means is you are my Lord. And positionally speaking, you see, our pilgrimage peace can be improved upon by reflecting and digesting the truth of our positional peace. Do you follow me? And we can open up Ephesians 1 when we're having a dark moment, and you can start reading. Just read Ephesians 1 where the Apostle Paul, it's like he takes a deep breath and out he goes, and he explains all of the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. How many blessings do we have in Christ Jesus? We have every blessing in the heavenly places. How many? Every one. How many are there? I don't know. Are we missing any? No. In fact, we are, in a sense, as we are united with Christ, we are seated with him at the right hand of God. Now, reflection and digestion, spiritual digestion of that truth, of that nugget, of that food, improves our pilgrimage peace. So our pilgrimage peace is improved by simply reflecting on what God has already done. This is what we got to fill our hearts with. It's better than filling your heart with the latest soundbite, whether it come from the left or the right. Fill your heart with the bedrock of God's gospel truth. Amen? Amen. Now let's look at verse 28, because we haven't gotten to verse 28 yet. And if I keep rambling on, we're not going to get to it this morning. Verse 28, Jesus says, now again, the context he's speaking to, he was speaking to 12 Apostles, I take it that Jesus is in the upper room. This is the night that he's betrayed, for sure. No controversy. I take it that Jesus has been, that there were 13 men originally in this upper room. There was Jesus and the 12 disciples. One of them, Jesus has cast out. Someone say, cast out. Yes, he cast him out. You remember, like, um, a number of Sundays ago, I talked about Jesus pushing the button. When does Jesus push the button? He pushes the button when he says to Judas Iscariot, who's going to betray him, he pushes the button when he says, listen, whatever you're going to do, go do quickly. Well, we also should see that as Jesus is casting him out. Jesus is casting him out because there's one in the bunch, there's one in the group here who does not have peace with God. And that's why we must always, just because we go to church every Sunday doesn't mean we have peace with God. You have peace with God if you believe in the Son. And you obey the Son. That's where we get peace with God. That's John 3.36. See how important John 3.36 is? we got to get it in our toolkit. But now, as we come to verse 28, Jesus is alone 
with 11 disciples. He's not on the hillside somewhere in Galilee preaching to the passerbys. He's teaching 11 people who have left everything, their businesses, their fishing boats. They've left everything to be with Jesus. Jesus has been the center of their life for the last three years. This is the group that he's talking to. And he says to them in verse 28, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. And this is one of the things. They're having a rough night, aren't they? Jesus said, I'm leaving. Where I'm going, you can't come. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. All this is happening at, at the same meal. This is a rough meal. And Jesus says to them, you heard me say, I'm going away and I'll come to you. But then Jesus says this, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Some of us say, well, what's that all about? What's well, a mild rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke. But it's designed to comfort. He said, you would have rejoiced. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Does it mean that they didn't love him? No, that's not what he's saying. We know that they love him. They left everything to follow him. Of course they love him. Why are they upset because he's leaving? Because they love him. But Jesus is saying this. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. Well, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, up until this point, what we conclude is that the disciples are hearing Jesus' words and they're primarily, probably almost exclusively processing these words in the context of how this is going to affect them. In other words, in your left-hand column, you can put the word self-centeredness or selfishness, whichever word you uh, prefer. And there's a principle that Jesus is about to develop here, and it's the principle that there is no peace in the context of selfishness. I mean, one of the worst things we can do as parents is raise little brats because they're never going to have any peace. I mean, if we teach our children that the world centers around them, every day of their lives they're going to get this lesson. It doesn't center around you. Now, how are you going to have peace in that context? And that's the spiritual principle that there's no rest for the wicked. Self-centeredness is wickedness. Self-consumed, it's wickedness. It's wickedness. There's no rest for the wicked. That's what the Bible teaches. I'm going to give you an example. Um, you know, when we were in Florida just a couple weeks ago, you know, we, we had the RTCA conference. We went down. RTCA conference was Monday through Thursday. Uh, Thursday afternoon, we left. We went down to... Um, um, we got to St. Augustine Thursday night, spent the night in St. Augustine. We get down to um, Port Orange on, um, on Friday, about 2 o'clock. You know? And um, uh, w one of the things that uh, we always do when we go down to visit Tammy's sisters, we go out to dinner. And uh, Tammy's um, uncle, uh, Delvin and Ann Hazel, always look forward to seeing those two. In fact, I did. Her uncle, I tease. I said, you know, we always want to get a picture with him. And I always tease him. To get him in the picture, I always say, listen, I go home and I tell everybody I know somebody's handsome with you. No one's going to believe me unless we get a picture. And he, he, he always, <laughs> I mean, I love this guy. He's so much fun. But we decide we're going to go to this restaurant. Kim picks out a restaurant. And we go down, and the restaurant's right on the beach. And as we got there, it was starting to get kind of crowded. Uh, we go in and we eat, and we come back. Now, at this point, there's very little parking. And um, so we all pile up in the car, and I'm going to back up, and I look in my rearview mirror, and there's, there's a woman that's right on my bumper. 
And I'm like, at first, I'm like, well, all right, uh, just wait a minute. You know, we're out in a hurry. I mean, let's wait a minute. And, but she's not moving. And finally, I'm thinking, well, I think maybe she wants our parking spot, you know? So I'm like, I'm looking at me. She can see me looking in the rearview mirror. And I'm starting to think, well, She's maybe a little bit socially challenged. I don't know. I, I'm going to put the I'm going to put the I'm going to put the car in reverse and show the backup lights to her, and that'll kind of say, okay, if you want my spot, the first step is to get me out of the way. So I put the car in reverse, and nothing. She doesn't move. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm almost thinking I need to get out and say, listen, I, you want spots all yours. We just need to get out of it first. Um, I thought, well, I'll inch towards her a little bit. So I inch back, and she inches back. And I inch back, and she inches back. And I inch back, and I'm not kidding you, it goes this slow. A little bit at a time, I'm moving back. And then finally, once I get past the car that was to my left, I couldn't see over it, it was a large vehicle. Once I got back enough that I could look to the left, I'm in a corner spot, and I look to my left, there's another car right there. I'm like, oh, these two are jockeying for the spot. Well, this woman now needs to leave me even more room because I need to get around this guy. So we're inching. And I think what she's afraid of is as we inch, he's going to shoot in. Well, wouldn't you know it, that's what he attempted to do. As I start to move, he fires in there and she fires in there and Tammy's watching the whole thing. Tammy busts out with this big laugh, puts her hand like Maggie, puts her hand over her face like, look at these two. And we're starting to think that there's going to be a need for the police. But this makes my point. There's no peace and selfishness. This could have won another way. In my opinion, I don't care who was there, who, who was there first. In my opinion, this is the way I was raised, and I believe this with all my heart. That man should have waved that woman into that spot. And you know what she probably would have done if he had did that? She would have waved back and thanked him, or she might have said, No, you were here first, you go. But you see, there would have been peace. There is no there is no peace and self-centeredness. There is no peace and selfishness. We've got to teach that to our children. Teaching our children that the world revolves around them is going to do the exact opposite. It's dangerous. Um, but Jesus, let's get back to verse 28 because there's more going on there than that. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you would have loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Um, they're, up to this point, it, it appears that their problem, largely, a lot of their anxiety and everything, is stemming from the very fact that they're perceiving Jesus' departure almost exclusively through the lenses of how it's going to affect them. They're not thinking about how this is going to affect Jesus. Jesus is going to be with the Father. This is something that Jesus has made clear throughout the three years of his ministry that this is something he desires more than anything, is fellowship with the Father. And what Jesus is getting at here is like, listen, if you really love me, you would be thinking about me. He's not saying they don't love him. He's just trying to stretch them to see how they can, how they can improve that love. And in improving that love, guess what? They're going to improve their, their peace. So in our left-hand column, we have selfishness or self-centeredness, and, and that's a point of contact that we can make with this world, 
And when we leave here and we go out and talk to people, people usually want to talk about gas prices. They want to talk about politics. They want to talk about food prices. And listen, I am really, really concerned, especially for some of our seniors, some of our folks that are retired and are on a fixed income. As everything goes up, their income does not go up. And some of them were barely making it before all this started happening. Um, really concerned. But as people start talking about gas prices, they start talking about all this stuff. You know what the cause of all this stuff is? It's not complicated. It's selfishness. You can do it with one word. When gas goes to $7 a gallon, come on, people are making a lot of money. You want to know what's up? Just follow the money. It's always how you learn what's up. Just follow the money trail. It's selfishness. Now, see, this gives us a point not to go into politics, not to go into, oh, well, they can't really do anything. Yeah, they can. You can, do, you can always do something. Not to go into all of that, but to talk about what's, what's going on here is selfishness. That's the way this, world, this fallen world is. It's centered. It's look out for number one. It's all about me. That's the way this world works. But Jesus has come to deliver us from selfishness. Jesus has come to deliver us from self-centeredness. Jesus has come to usher in a kingdom, a kingdom that will ultimately be completely free of selfishness. Now, how do we grow in this? By combating the self-centeredness that's in our hearts. Some of us, you know, sometimes as you talk about selfishness, you'll meet people that will make these really self-righteous contests or self-righteous comments. They'll say, well, you know, I always try to do to others uh, like I would want to be done. I always try to do the right thing, you know. I'll do you now. Um, okay, then you don't need a savior. You're perfect. Um, that's a story for another day. Um, but here are 11 men who have been in seminary with Jesus for the last three years who are acting in a self-consumed way in this upper room. And Jesus is trying to comfort them. And how is Jesus comforting them? He's comforting by getting them to look away from themselves, to look to him. And simply saying, listen, if you love me, you would rejoice. Because I'm going, with, I'm going to the Father. This has incredible significance at the funeral parlor, doesn't it? In the case when a loved one who knows and loves the Lord passes away. This has, this has tremendous context in the funeral, doesn't it? In the case of a loved one who knows the Lord. We can rejoice because our loved one is in the presence of the Father. Our loved one is in the presence of Christ. Our loved one is now free of this self-centeredness. Our loved one is now free of all of the ails of this world. Now, I am not of the stripe that advocates that we shouldn't cry at those kinds of funerals. You'll sometimes have people stand up and say, we're not going to cry at this funeral because our loved one is with you. Has anybody been to one of those? There are, I mean, there's two kinds of those that I've observed. One is the worst when the pastor is not directly affected by the loss of the loved one, and he says that to the group. Okay, it's not your mom that passed away. It's not your wife that passed away. It's not your son or daughter that passed away. How easy is that to say? 
But then there's another one that I can have a lot of compassion, more compassion for is when the pastor is directly affected by the loss of the loved one. But the scriptures, listen, the scriptures don't teach us not to mourn. The scriptures teach believers not to mourn as those who have no hope. Does that make sense? That's what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. But he doesn't say don't grieve. Of course we're going to grieve because our loved one, we, we want to see our loved one every day. I want to be able to talk to my loved one today. I want to be able to see them, and especially in cases of spouses. You know, your partner in life. You, you wake up in the morning, you've got your partner in life. I mean, when that, come on, there's going to be some tears. But let's not forget, in the case of a loved one who knows the Lord, that hope. We can put hope in our left-hand column. And this really gets a lot of traction. Secularism is void of hope. There's no hope in secularism. Where's the hope in secularism? Tell me, where's the hope? What hope do we have in that? It's empty. It's void. It's bankrupt. There's no hope in it. It's going to be self-destruct. It already is. Look what's happening. It's self-destructing. But here's hope. You can put in your left-hand column death. In fact, if you want to put death slash hope, that'd be great. Our government officials cannot deliver us from death. They never will be able to quit looking to them to try. Jesus Christ has come precisely to deliver us from death. He delivers us from death. And, you know, it's like you can reason from, from a lesser to greater, and you can say, man, if he can do that, he can deliver me from anything. I mean, if he can deliver me from death and usher me into eternal life and eternal bliss in the presence of you and the Father to where I'll now know pain no more. There isn't anything you can, you, you can do all, you can do it all. So we, we preach that to ourselves and you can already see how that improves your peace. Now listen, this is the easiest time of the week to improve our peace right now. We say, oh man, this is great. I just feel my peace being improved. Oh yeah, right now it's easy. But we're going to go through that door here in a little bit. And don't be surprised before the afternoon's over that you've had that peace disrupted, especially when you're driving down the road looking for a parking place, okay? Sometimes we're the culprits, aren't we? Um, what do we do in those moments? Well, these are, these are tools we can use to improve our peace, you know? Does that make sense? It's probably enough for now, right? It's powerheads. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. You are a great God, a God who's given us a Savior. You have come yourself to be our Savior. You have come in the person of Jesus Christ. And what comfort you afford us, what hope you afford us, what deliverance you have afforded us. And oh, Father, the moment we put our faith and trust in you, we are now no longer objects of your wrath, but we are sons and daughters of Almighty Sons and daughters of the Almighty One, the Holy One of Israel. And, oh, Father, we thank you for that positional peace. And, Father, we pray that you will give us the grace to apply that positional peace to our pilgrimage peace. And, Father, as we think about selfishness and self-centeredness, Lord, and we see the lesson that you give us, um, the, the lesson you give to the disciples is that there's a principle there for us, Lord. We see how much comfort that brings us as we combat the selfishness of our hearts and Father, we see that if this selfishness is running in the hearts of the disciples, we see how deep 
This self-centeredness and selfishness runs in our hearts. Oh, Father, only you could deliver us from this. But you have come to deliver us from this. And that gives us hope. Oh, what hope we have, oh, Father. And help us to apply that hope, oh, Lord, to our lives. You've given us, you've given us deliverance even over death. Oh, Father, may we preach this to ourselves. and May we walk in this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.